From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello again and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Chantel, Sonia, Dan, Maya, Galen, Linda, Teresa, my dear three Emmas, Jessica, Lady Janice, Marie, Elena, Alethea, John, Nanette, Rachel, Sophie, Whitney, David, Catherine, Trudy, and Stacy. Thank you guys so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron. Like, share, subscribe. It just might help our community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me and we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with a listener only in mind so nothing is missed. This week's podcast will be on Mary Ann Cotton. Mary Ann Robson was born on Halloween in the year of our Lord, 1832, in Low Moorsley, County Durham, England, which is now the city of Sunderland in northern England. So as we always do, let's get into some history for that time. In early 1832, William Lloyd Garrison, a prominent American Christian, abolitionist, journalist, suffragist, and social reformer, founded the New England Anti-Slavery Society. He is best known for his anti-slavery newspaper, The Liberator, which he founded in 1831 in Boston. The Christmas Rebellion of Slaves was brought to an end in Jamaica after the island's white planters organized militias along with the British Army, sending military officers to enforce martial law. More than 300 slave rebels were publicly hanged for their part in the rebellion. Also, Charles Darwin and the crew of the HMS Beagle arrived in South America for the first time. In Ohio, a group of men beat, tarred, and feathered Mormon leader Joseph Smith. Greece was recognized as a sovereign nation. The Treaty of Constantinople ended the Greek War of Independence, and the June Rebellion and the Bad Axe Massacre ended the last major Native American rebellion east of the Mississippi in the United States. 
and the Cumberland and Oxford Canal connected the largest lakes of southern Maine with the seaport of Portland, Maine. So this was the atmosphere that Mary was born into. Her parents were Michael Robson, born in 1812, and Margaret Lonsdale, born around 1816, and the two were married in 1832, the same year Mary was born, so there's that. They had a total of three children, Mary, then a daughter Margaret, who only lived a few months, and finally Thomas, though sometimes listed as Robert, born in 1835. When Mary was eight years old, the family moved to the village of Merton, and her father worked as a miner. And this line of work was pretty typical for the times. The contracts would last around a year, and then the miners would move on to the next. The mines drew in thousands of workers from all over Britain as well. So with the frequent moves and having to get to know a whole new set of people in the new places, well, that would make it hard for people to feel as if they had solid roots. It is said that Michael was quite strictly religious, following the Methodist denomination, and a fierce disciplinarian. One source said that he and the family were quite active in their church's choir and other activities. Of course, after the move, they all started at a new school, and sources say Mary in particular had a hard time making friends, so she isolated. However, her childhood Sunday school superintendent described her as a, quote, most exemplary and regular attender, a girl of innocent disposition and average intelligence and distinguished for her particularly clean and tidy appearance, end quote. And then, not too long after they had gotten settled after their move, Michael fell 150 feet or 46 meters down a mine shaft killing him. His remains were delivered to her mother in a sack, which had been stamped, quote, property of the South Hetton Coal Company, end quote. After her father's death, the family was in dire straits financially because they lived in what you could call company housing through Michael's employer, so they would have been evicted. This, along with the lack of her father's income, well, life was tough, as any of us can imagine. But somehow, they were able to scrape by. And after around three years or so, Mary's mother remarried. All sources stated she absolutely loathed her stepfather, George, who also happened to be a minor. And this is most likely because he was not fond of her at all, and he was very harsh. So when Mary was 16 years old, she decided she had had enough and planned to leave. She moved to South Hetton, just the next village over from where her family was, and into a very nice house with a very prosperous family to be the nanny. Sources called it everything from a servant to a nurse, but we would know this as being the nanny of the household children. The parents of the children had said they had zero complaints about her work, and yet at this young age, she began her life of scandal. The gossipers around town began spreading rumors that she was having a torrid affair with a local churchman. 
Whether or not that's true is left to the ages. But she cared for the children for three years until they were all sent to a boarding school. So she moved back home with her parents and began training as a dressmaker. And this is what we have for her childhood. So let's take a look. As I was researching her and what life was like for these types of families where the father worked for the mines, and it would seem to be, as I said, a rootless existence, they would only be in one spot for up to a year, and then they'd have to move house again, obviously following where the work was. Mary's family would have most certainly been alarmingly poor, but this was also life for nearly all of the people within the family's acquaintances. I can imagine, once the mining job was done, that the children would say their farewells and ask if they knew who was going to what next place to perhaps see if they would end up together again. Even though that was life as the children knew it, frequent moving takes a toll on children's social-emotional well-being. At all ages, each additional move is associated with small declines in social skills and emotional and behavioral problems. Although the effects are small, these deficits can accumulate, leaving kids who move multiple times at a greater risk. Some children are more likely to perform poorly in school as well. It can contribute to developing anxiety or depression for some children. On the other side of that, some research shows that kids who move often have developed better abilities to remember situations they've experienced. But in all, children who have moved five or more times during their childhood are three times as likely to experience mental health problems. And though her father was described as a harsh disciplinarian, through the research, one didn't get the impression he was violently abusive or neglectful. Harsh discipline was how things were done then, take it or leave it. So his death would have most likely been hard for Mary and the family. Mining work was extremely hard work and just as equally dangerous. So again, one could imagine that everyone in that community knew someone who had lost a loved one, but that doesn't diminish the pain it likely caused her. They were already pretty poor, and now that Michael was gone, they would have been under threat of being homeless and hungry, and that is a very universal language of stress and anxiety. Her mother remarried, and all sources made a point to state she was not a fan of her stepfather because he was mean to her. And let's face it, blended families can be quite difficult, and especially so if the new stepparent is difficult to get along with. But Mary's mother would have, during those times, nearly had to take what she could get to survive and continue to care for her children. Women didn't have a lot of options in Mary's day. So let's get back into the story. Again, she trained as a dressmaker after moving back home when she was 19 years old. The next year, in 1852, she married William Mowbray, and they moved to the southwestern part of England in Devon. There's not really any information as to how life was for her during this time, but what we do know is that she had five children with William, nearly back to back. 
except four of them died from what was called gastric fever, which today is typhoid fever, which is caused by the salmonella bacterium. Some of the symptoms include weakness, abdominal pain, constipation or diarrhea, headaches, and vomiting. And while it isn't uncommon for children to not survive into adulthood during this time, losing four out of five of them was a statistical anomaly for sure. Strange. But this is really all we know about those four children as, back then, the deaths were not legally required to be registered. The law would be created and enforced starting in 1874. The only recorded birth was a daughter, Margaret Jane, born in 1856 when Mary was 24 years old. Mary and William moved back up near her home area in the Northeast, and William found work as a fireman on a steamboat sailing out of Sunderland. He then changed jobs and became a mining foreman. Mary went on to have three more children, Isabella, born in 1858. But then Margaret Jane died when she was just four years old of gastric fever in 1860. She gave birth to another daughter that she named Margaret Jane in 1861, and then a son, John Robert, in 1863. Unfortunately, he would not live past his first year of life because he, too, succumbed to gastric fever. So, if you're keeping track, out of eight children she had at this point given birth to, she only had two surviving children— Isabella, and the second, Margaret Jane. Now, it was said that Mary and William didn't get along very well. And then in 1865, he fell ill and died. What of, you ask? Well, gastrointestinal issues. But don't worry about Mary. There had been a life insurance policy through the British and Prudential Insurance Company on her husband, as well as a few of the children, which she collected. It was roughly the same as about six months' worth of wages, so she was fine. Then the next year, her own mother was fighting some illness, and Mary rushed to her side. Her mother had begun to improve, but wouldn't you know she suddenly was stricken with the same stomach ailment that had taken so many of Mary's loved ones, and she died as well. But at this point, Mary had already gotten remarried. Only after a few months of marriage, he too suddenly died from the dreaded gastric fever. But in her grief, she very quickly was able to move on and began dating a widower by the name of James Robinson. He had originally hired Mary as a housekeeper in November 1866. The couple married fairly quickly. Now, James had four children with his wife that had died, and Mary was now their stepmother. But then two of his children mysteriously died, along with her daughter, Isabella, from stomach ailments. And then James noticed that Mary was pushing him, and pushing him to take out a life insurance policy on himself. This understandably made him suspicious, as it would anyone. But the couple had a child together, Margaret Isabella, in 1868, when Mary was 36 years old. 
And as I bet you've guessed, this baby died before she saw her first birthday. James and Mary then had a son, George, together. This brings her back to only having two biological children alive at this point. So when James would not take out a large life insurance policy on himself, on top of him discovering some rather large debts that she had run up, he threw her and her older child out. Sources say he kept George with him. One year later, it is recorded that Mary married another widower by the name of Frederick Cotton, whose surname she took and is the name she is usually known by, even though the marriage is effectively null and void because Mary had not legally divorced her previous husband. They had met through his sister who, not surprisingly, died from a mysterious stomach ailment after Mary had met Frederick. So Frederick and Mary quickly had a son together. Then two of his sons from his previous marriage died from gastric fever. After a bit, Mary discovered that a previous favored lover of hers was recently widowed and she actually convinced Frederick to move to the same village he was in so she could rekindle their romance. And she was most assuredly successful. Unfortunately, Frederick developed a very serious stomach ailment towards the end of 1870 and died that year. Tisk tisk. And you bet your ass she had gotten him to take a life insurance policy on himself and she quickly collected. But she had been pregnant with Frederick's baby when he died and she gave birth after his death. So, as a recap, because I can almost hear the murder fam saying, Jesus, how many times was she pregnant? At this point, she had had 12 successful pregnancies, but only four of them were living the second, Margaret Jane, George, whose father retained custody of him, and two children with Frederick. So with Frederick out of the way, oh, my sincerest apologies, I mean after his tragic death, she moved her lover into her house as a, quote, lodger, and she went to work as a nurse to an ailing man, Richard Quickman, who was recovering from smallpox. And predictably, she became pregnant with his child. Two of her other surviving children, whom she had had with Frederick, suddenly died from gastric fever, unfortunately. This left Margaret Jane, part two, as her only surviving child, and George, who again lived with his father, and the child that she was carrying at 40 years old. And then several of their shared acquaintances also died from a sudden gastric ailment, including yet another man that she had quickly married. So, as one would assume, word really had already spread around the village concerning the way so many of Mary's nearest and dearest had died so suddenly over the previous two decades of stomach ailments. In particular, a parish official Thomas Riley asked her to help nurse a woman who was ill with smallpox, but Mary complained that the last surviving cotton boy, Charles Edward, was in the way. She told Riley that the boy was sickly and added, quote, I won't be troubled long. He'll go like all the rest of the cottons. 
And wouldn't you know, just five days later, the boy died. Riley, remembering what Mary had said about him, went to the village police and convinced the doctor to delay writing a death certificate until the circumstances could be properly investigated. Mary's first visit after Charles's death was not to the doctor. In fact, her first stop was to the insurance office. Only there, she was surprised to discover that no money would be paid out until a death certificate was issued. And while an inquest was held and the jury returned a verdict of natural causes, the local newspapers had already latched on to the story and it was quickly discovered that Mary had moved around Northern England and had lost three husbands, a lover, a friend, her own mother, and 11 children and others, all of whom had died of stomach fevers. It was at this point that Charles Cotton's remains were then exhumed and tested. What they found was a significant amount of arsenic found in the deceased's stomach. Arsenic, guys. So what would dying from arsenic poisoning feel like? Well, I'll tell you, it isn't at all pleasant. Is arsenic poisoning quick? Well, some of the arsenic poisoning can obviously vary with the type and concentration of the poison. Inorganic arsenic may cause abdominal pains, destruction of red blood cells, shock, and death quickly. Symptoms of acute arsenic exposure generally occur within 30 to 60 minutes after ingestion. Acute poisoning symptoms usually begin with headaches, confusion, severe diarrhea, and drowsiness. As the poisoning develops, convulsions can begin. When the poisoning becomes acute, symptoms may include diarrhea, vomiting, vomiting blood, blood in the urine, cramping muscles, hair loss, stomach pain, and more convulsions. The organs of the body that are usually affected by arsenic poisoning are the lungs, skin, kidneys, and liver. The final result of arsenic poisoning is coma and death. It is an intensely horrific and painful, sick way to die. Effectively, Mary Ann Cotton was arrested for Charles's murder. Now, the trial was delayed until after Mary delivered her 13th and final child, whom she named Margaret Edith Quick Manning Cotton. Once the trial began, the defense stated Charles had inhaled arsenic by accident while putting up wallpaper in the house that had it in it. But they also argued that it was possible that the chemist had mistakenly used arsenic powder instead of bismuth powder used to treat diarrhea when preparing food for cotton because he had been distracted by talking to other people. But the jury would hear none of it. They returned a verdict of guilty. The Times correspondent reported, quote, After conviction, the wretched woman exhibited strong emotion, but this gave place in a few hours to her habitual cold, reserved demeanor. And while she harbors a strong conviction that the royal clemency will be extended towards her, she staunchly asserts her innocence of the crime that she has been convicted of. End quote. 
While awaiting her execution, she did nurse baby Margaret Edith until the baby had to be given to a trusted friend. Mary Ann Cotton was hanged at Durham County Goal in March 1873 at the age of 41. She died not from her neck breaking, but rather by the strangulation caused by the rope being rigged too short, possibly deliberately. Her only surviving children were again Margaret Edith and George, who she did not raise. So what happened to those children? Margaret Edith was given to a couple named William and Sarah Edwards, who had in fact been a childless couple, and they gladly adopted infant Margaret and raised her as their own. In 1881, the census shows her name as being Margaret Edwards. She went on and married John Joseph Fletcher, who was a coal miner, in 1890. They went on to have a daughter, Clara. Then she and her husband actually boarded a steamship and immigrated from Liverpool, England, to New York in the United States. They had a son, William, in 1883 in California, where John was working in mining. In 1894, her husband died, presumably from a mining accident, and Margaret took her two children and moved back to England. She remarried and had another son. During World War II, she lost both of her sons, and she died in 1954 at 81 years old in her home, but had lived a full life. Now, as far as George's life in the 1881 census, it was recorded that James still had George, who was 11 at the time, Mary having been executed when he was just three years old. It would appear that James had remarried and had a daughter who was nine at the time of the census. Now, I actually found a site, which I will put in the notes, that shows two letters Mary wrote to James after her sentencing. The spelling is different, and it does represent her regional accent and writing styles, so I will sum it up. She wrote, quote, March the 12th, my dear friend, I suppose you will mourn when I tell you concerning my fate. I wish to know if you will let me see the children as soon as possible. I should like to see you too. Bring them if you can. If you cannot, ask someone else to bring them. I think if you have one bit of kindness in you, you will try to get my life spared. You know yourself there has been a most dreadful to hear lies that have been told about me, and I must tell you, you are the cause of all of my trouble. For if you had left me the house, I wouldn't have wandered the streets, no home for me, no place to lay my head. When you closed the door, I had no one, for you know yourself I am not guilty of the lies that have been told concerning me. If you speak nothing but the truth, one thing I hope you will try to get my life spared, for I am not guilty of the crime I have to die for, considering things and do what you can for me. I must conclude at this time. I hope to hear from you by return of post. M.A. Cotton. End quote. This letter is a bit odd because the other children, besides George, were not her children. Regardless, James did not reply, so she wrote him again. Quote, 
My dear friend, as I cannot say anything else to you, my last request is will you meet Aunt Hulbert, who was her mother's sister, tomorrow afternoon from three to four in the afternoon. Will you meet her beside the bank on the side of the bridge? She wants to see you. I have written to try to get a petition to get my life spared and to come out and stand trial for the other three cases that I am charged with, for I am not guilty of them. My proper evidence was not properly given to the counselor, and I should not be condemned to death. I should win the trial, so I hope you will meet her. My last request, farewell, M.A. Cotton. Needless to say, James did not go meet Mary's aunt, stating he was confused as to the day, but it was said he never bothered to try to find her later either. But it is said he did visit the prison with a friend, but had the friend go in to see Mary, which distressed her because he himself would not meet her. And that is it. One has to assume that young George grew up and had a normal life, as I couldn't find anything else about him, including the year he died. So, a very dear friend of mine and I had a short discussion about female serial killers and why most all of them don't use extreme types of violence to kill. Some do, but most don't. Why is that? According to Psychology Today, there is a popular myth that serial killers are all men, but we know that that isn't true. Female serial killers do exist, but their motivations are significantly different. In particular, sex is generally much further down the list of motivations, much, much further down. In fact, sexual or sadistic motives are extremely rare about female serial killers. Psychopathic traits and a history of childhood abuse are often found among the very few female serial killers who have sexual or sadistic motives. They actually tend to take a much more pragmatic approach to their kills, most likely to kill for profit or revenge, thus falling into the category of the hedonist comfort gain killer than any other type. Females, unlike male serial killers, also usually target men who are emotionally and physically close to them, as in husbands or lovers, and they generally kill to improve their lifestyle. Studies also show that their victims often include children and the elderly. And even though female serial killers only make up about 11% of all serial killers, Females are much more successful in their work and typically use quieter, less messy methods. And as with Mary, poisoning is the preferred choice. And it is also pretty common that female comfort gain killers, they are employed as caretakers in nursing homes for the elderly or working with children or sickly people. And we in the true crime community pretty well understand this. But with the case of Mary Ann Cotton, I have to admit that I really didn't know her story. I had heard the name, of course, but she was requested. And as I began to investigate and research, it dawned on me just how prolific a serial killer she was and her own precious babies as well. As much as we obviously do not agree with what she did, it kind of surprises me that she's not a criminal icon. 
However, there was a northern nursery rhyme that went, quote, Sing, sing, oh, what can we sing? Mary Ann Cotton is tied up with string. Where, where, up in the air, selling black puddings a penny a pair. So tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below, or you can DM me on Instagram, at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is below. But most importantly, thank you so very much for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Yeah, anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer, and whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.